Welcome to episode nine of Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Berle-Lumblad, and me, Richard Allen. Yes, in this episode, the, the ninth of our episodes, we're going to talk about copyright. And copyright, of course, is a huge subject, but it's interesting because we don't talk as much about copyright today as we used to do uh, uh, in the beginning of our careers, I think. Copyright used to be, I think, arguably the hottest policy issue of all of the tech policy issues then. And it's morphed into a couple of different issues that we have been touching on, like the news issue, etc. But the, the copyright proper issue is, is almost in the background now. And, and yet still, I mean, the fundamental challenge of copyright policy, which was well, I think, formulated by John Perry Barlow in one of his early articles, I want to say 1994, where he writes about wine in new bottles and essentially says, look, we're entering a world where you can digitize property, you can copy it anywhere infinitely without any cost, and you can distribute it without any friction to the entire world immediately. That is going to present uh, a bit of a challenge. <laughs> As he, he sort of, I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's sort of the, the gist of the, I think it was Wired article. And, and that challenge, the fact that ideas can be copied infinitely and at almost zero cost and distributed globally is still there. <clears throat> but the copyright industry and I think to a large degree, the tech companies have found entirely new solutions and, and also, I think, new conflict lines as, as compared to where they were in, say, 1996, 95, around the time the copyright debates really started, um, or arguably 94 then with Barlow's article. So what do you think, looking back at the copyright debates that you've been a part of, what do you think are the, the if you just go back to the early copyright debates, and we start talking a little bit about, you know, why why were there debates at all? Why was there intellectual property law at all? And, and let's start from there. Yeah, so, so I think yeah, we, it is important to go back to those first principles. I think especially for, for a generation that's grown up with everything digital, who, who will often sort of look at this and, and wonder what's going on. But we've got to remember that like the prime reason why intellectual property law exists is it's essentially the state saying, if you have created something, then we're going to use the force of law to allow you to both exploit and control your creation. And, and both of those elements are actually quite important. So the exploit bit is the money bit. It says, look, if you've created something, and again, we should remember, it's not just about music and movies, but actually software. <laughs> For example, you know, t tech people, when they write code, they have copyright in that code unless they choose to give it away. So anything that somebody's created, they, they essentially, the, the state is saying, we will support your right to exploit that commercially and, and protect it from others exploiting it commercially without your permission, but also to, to have a certain level of control about how your creation is being used. Um, and these are often called the kind of moral rights over intellectual property. And to give you an example of where that might be important is, is if you've created a piece of music and a politician that you hate <laughs> or a, a product that you despise takes your piece of music and uses it to promote themselves, like, of course, you're not going to like that. And so you have both this right to exploit the stuff you've created for money, but you also have a right to control how it's used to prevent it being used in ways that you as the creator would find offensive. Um, so that's what we're talking about. And, and, and that was... Yeah. Yeah. No, please. I think I think that's that's so important because one of the things that we uh, discovered early on was that the first copyright debates, the absolute first ones we had, was you know why would the state do that? Why would the state give you that? And there were several different grounds for it. One of them was essentially saying that the state saying, look. Uh, we want to incentivize creativity. If we don't give you that protection, nobody will create anything. Which, you know, internet generations, the early internet generation said, well, that's blatantly false. There's a lot being created here that's not created because there is copyright. It's just created because man is a creative animal. And the other reason I think was more sort of a durable one that we still see is that, look, creation represents an investment of time, efforts, and resources. And that time, those efforts and those resources give you a certain kind of protection. But the heart of copyright, though, is that first piece, the piece we have to give you the right in order to entice you to create. And there, if you scratch the surface, a lot of people said in the beginning, 
beginning of the copyright debates that at the heart of the copyright debates is this romantic notion of the genius, the genius who creates something that's so outstanding, so fantastic, that we should all be grateful and then give the genius the right to exploit and control, as you say, that thing. And, and even there, in the motivation for copyright overall, the early debate, the early internet debates, were essentially along the lines of, why do we have this? We should just abolish it. And I think a lot of people don't realize today that that was a that was an option on the table. A lot of people said we don't need copyright anymore, or we cannot uphold copyright anymore. Right? That's right. And, and yeah, I think things shifted in a sense because when everything was based on physical goods, uh, when, when the creation was linked to a physical object it was easier to control uh, the distribution of it. And in a sense, what happened with digitization is it, it decoupled the creation from a physical object. And by decoupling it, it then opened up these questions in a way that they hadn't really been looked at for, for many, many years. But I think you're right. Actually, I, I do think there is... I agree with you in a sense that the first argument, no one will create anything if they can't earn money, is is much more contestable is is the one that you can re really push back on but i think there is a a general sort of human sense of fairness we don't like cheats we believe in fairness if somebody has created something it's kind of only fair that they get some benefit from that and and if other people take it from them without their permission we we do as I say, a little bit like in school, it's a sense of sort of cheating, the difference between doing the exam yourself and somebody else copying the answers. Um, and, and so I think that is a, actually a much more pervasive view. And, and in this internet age, as we go on to talk about how we deal with this in the internet age, I think it is probably going to be a lot better for us to be looking at that core principle, which is, look, you know, as, as a society, as a group of people, um, how do we want to treat that process of creation and treat treat the creators rather than just drilling down on them? You know, almost like, well, we don't want this law, but we have to have it for economic reasons. <laughs> like, I think that's a, a much less sort of solid basis on which to to create policies than one that says we want to be fair. Uh, we want a fair exchange between the creator yeah. and the rest of us who enjoy the creation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right, and I think that the right of you know, being named the author of a work that you produced, or and that's a part of the moral rights, right? So that right of attribution, I think, is a is a real thing that people care a lot of. Now, the question is how you move from the right of attribution to these economic rights, and and then I think, you know, there is an existential question there: Should we have economic rights? Can they be derived from the moral right that we all agree on? And then there's there's another question which I think is: Okay, what is the scope, the reasonable scope of those economic rights, given that we all agree on the fairness argument? And and a lot of the the early copyright debates pointed out that you know to have protection, 75, 80, 90 years after the author has passed away seems to to overdo it slightly yes <laughs> and and there is there is um i think there is a really interesting set of philosophical and legal arguments around how you from moral rights derive economic rights and you scope them what should they be and i think and that's a debate that's also i mean it was really intense in the beginning there were arguments to shorten copyright etc because that would be the reasonable response to the digital revolution but but today we have none of those discussions what do you think made people what was it in the shift to digital that made people really feel we, we need to re-examine copyright yeah i, I mean it was the, in a sense the fact that there was um let, let's use the language that the, the copyright owners would use large-scale abuse that all of a sudden we opened things up and people were copying content and distributing it without seeking any permission uh, in in some cases, sort of quite deliberately uh, to to uh, exploit the content for financial gain, and in other cases, almost unconsciously, if just you know, I'm on the internet, uh, music free. I'll just go and get a bunch of music. And so I think you you had a whole spectrum. I say from people who were in a sense like the old pirates remember there were old pirates there were people who um would you know get a piece of music and and print their own cds of that music and sell those through a black market so there was this kind of industrial commercial exploitation thing going on even in the physical content world so those people some of those did sort of translate to trying to make money online but, but i think there's a much bigger community of people who were just like I say almost oblivious and just well, you know, the music's out there. And actually, again, sitting here in 2021, we're reflecting on on early days, but in 2021, 
I think that's certainly the prevalent attitude amongst younger people. Like, if you can find it on the internet and make a copy of it, then that's fair game. Uh, and that's really, you know, challenging in a sense yeah. for, for you if you're a copyright owner. I, I think that has become the kind of prevalent uh, view of people. And so you now have a set of business models that I'm sure we're going to go on to talk about that are sort of developing where the competition is between some kind of paid-for service and free content. Uh, and so you need some kind of value add, free certainly in terms of cash, that the content could be obtained in another way uh, without making a payment. So you're you're competing between those those two models. I don't. I think in a sense they're again we'll so think back the early campaigns where copyright owners said wanted to play on that sense of fairness they only got so far uh and i don't think they won that battle there was a sort of lot of effort to say look you guys are stealing stop no, stealing didn't. i don't think they've won that one no and i th- i think there's a reason for it too because if you if you go back you can reframe this entire discussion and you go back to to the early days of the internet and you look at what actually was happening um and you you can sort of you can draw a very let me draw a very simple model of what was happening and it's admittedly simple and flawed but but there's something to it you could say that in the beginning people realized that they could digitize their music say for uh, you know a very simple way to just rip a cd and win amp or some other cool player that, that we used way back when we're dating ourselves now we're technical <laughs> dinosaurs as so you yeah. would rip a cd you get a lot of mp3s you'd put them up on a web page and other people could then download it and you were doing this in the spirit of sharing and you were doing it because you thought you know other people would like you if you shared so a little bit of social status that quickly came under fire of course because the copyright industry said well that's not that's not okay you don't have a license and they sort of they shut down these mp3 files then something really interesting happened because there was such strong demand for digital content what happened was that we saw the evolution of services that were completely outside of the licensed space that were in a sense illegal that's that sort of they met this demand the first one obviously napster with a centralized hub where you could download tons of mp3 files napster was then hit because it had this central file and what then happened was that we saw the peer-to-peer networks like casa take napster place and suddenly there there was no single person anymore and after casa because you started attacking different users you saw the rise of BitTorrent and of course the rise of pirate bay and when we're sort of slowly getting to to we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're getting to the large conflicts in the copyright space but my point is this i think that what happened there was there was extraordinarily strong demand from people from users to have digital content and that demand was thwarted again and again and again by a copyright uh, by the copyright owners or the publishers rather than the copyright owners because they felt at that point that they didn't have a path to a viable business model and that was so interesting to me because i I don't think that they i I wouldn't blame them for it i think that in a sense they felt that they didn't understand digital and all of their users did and they had this enormous demand and they were trying to channel it back to physical goods to your early point right but there was no way that people were going back to physical goods with the internet so so in a sense the early copyright debate to me seems to be an enormous inability to meet a quickly rising demand that's sort of how i and this is the simple and and admittedly sort of simplistic model that i have in my head when i think about the the sort of early days of copyright uh discussions i I think you're right i mean you know people go in search of a better product (laughs) and um when you go from cd to mp3 download it is both cheaper and better (laughs) uh um and and so you know it's hard to see well you just again not technological determinism to say, look, in a market, um, when customers have a choice, they will choose the cheaper and better product over the less good and more expensive one. Um, and so we see that now. I think, again, I don't know if you're the same, but today, if I, I'm looking for a movie, you know, my first choice is to go and find a streaming site and I will pay my money for the streaming site. I really, really, really don't want to order a DVD and have it sent to me. Uh, you know, that's just too much friction. And so, 
lots of us are sort of experiencing that today and on the on the video side and and that was pretty much how it was back then on the audio side that audio w- was accessible even on c- kind of quite slow broadband speeds at the time um you could download those mp3s you could use them and of course yes the customers were way ahead of the suppliers <laughs> of the goods and the suppliers of the goods were uh, partly digging their heels in because they wanted to protect their historic business model, but but quite a lot, as you say, I think um, Nicholas just they they just hadn't figured out how to do it, um, and it really did take another group of entrepreneurs to come along and and figure out some business models. And the one today that we we all look at, but I think is a very good example, is Spotify that, that came along and said, you know, I I can figure out how we can create a viable business model through streaming. Uh, and again, I know that's still contested, and a lot of artists. Yeah you know feel that they're not getting recompense but at least it exists (laughs) it takes in a lot of money it dispenses a lot of money it is a a viable paid for streaming business model uh that we now have today and it took a remarkably long time to get from those early days of people ripping off cds and sharing them through to there being some kind of substantive business model that's on offer for people to share music a remarkably long time and and it wasn't from the cop- uh, the that we used to term copyright industry. I know it sort of offends some people. It wasn't from the, the let's say the the record companies. Then I think that it wasn't the record companies that came along and invented this. It was actually Apple, right? Apple were the first ones to come up with the iPod and the iTunes music service, and they sort of saw this enormous demand and decided, look, somebody has to harness it. And Steve Jobs, in, you know, uh, in, some would say a fairly uh, a smart way, took this demand and channeled it into to a closed ecosystem with the iPod and iTunes. And, and that was the first time that there was actually an ability to, to take your consumer demand and legally meet it with supply. And I think that's, to me, it's it's sort of a reminder of how hard it is for an industry to disrupt itself, to go from the physical goods that you mentioned in the beginning to, to the digital goods. And, and that often the shocks that make an industry change have to come from the outside. Yeah. And I think it's it's instructive to see that what Apple did was not necessarily to sort of bring a ton of, they had their own format, the flag format, et cetera, but they didn't bring a ton of innovation to the, the digitization of music. They did it to distribution and to availability and to ease of use and to the um, sort of the, the MP3 player at the end. There were tons of other MP3 players, but they were not connected to any business ecosystem. So if you wanted to, if you were a record company, you could go like, oh, look, all of these MP3 players seem to be working well. Maybe what I'll do is that I'll sort of buy one of those and I'll try to make sure that that's my new physical dish. But that didn't happen. No. And I, I think I have a theory about this. I think this has to do with the fact that if you're granting a right, which is what's happening in the copyright space, what you're doing is that you're incentivizing people to live off of that right as it stands for as long as possible in the most efficient form you know. And you don't necessarily incentivize research and development. So it's, it's, it's sort of you, you're pushing people into a... Um, a rent mind, where you're sort of collecting rents on your right. And that makes it really, really hard for, for an industry to change. What do you yeah. think? I think that's right. I mean, anyone who has sunk cost. And again, we've got to remember how the industry works. And, and we may go on to talk about copyright for ordinary individuals who are just pr- producing stuff. Um, but but here, certainly when we're talking about music, it was an industry. And the industry would have paid a lot of money up front. Uh, they might have paid... 50,000, 100,000 pounds to somebody to produce a piece of music. Um, and so that's sunk costs. And it's natural in any industry that you then want to try and extract maximum value from that sunk cost. You, you did a spreadsheet and it said, you know, the artist is going to cost me this amount and I've got 20 years of income, which will hopefully give me a profit. And if somebody comes along and cuts that income stream off, your business model is disrupted. So, so you're right. I think there was a lot of defending of sunk cost, um, which is perfectly reasonable and understandable from a, a business logic point of view, even if the technology was was pointing us in a different direction. Um, so I think there was quite a lot there going on. It's interesting, the Apple um, model you described, I think it, what they were competing on was it was a more expensive but better product, which actually I think suited Apple customers. Again, if you think of the mindset of somebody buying an Apple phone, they were buying the more expensive product because it was cooler than the kind of cheap, generic, that's probably a Nokia or whatever it was that they were going to be buying. And in the same way, 
you know, if you were bought into Apple, you could still go on the download sites and try and access all the MP3s. But no, and that would have been free. (laughs) But no, you were prepared to pay a little more because of the slickness of an iPod, of the iTunes, the whole. And again, we can remember, I think, we first downloading things like iTunes. And when uh, I didn't have Apples back then, they were far too expensive. But I had uh, Windows computers. And having iTunes for Windows was like this incredibly cool, slick product. And there was nothing like it on Windows. So again, another interesting a, a competitive sort of scenario where Apple are competing on a more expensive but better quality product and winning customers on that basis. Um, yeah. So you win, you're either cheaper or you're better. Uh, if you're better and cheaper, even 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 more attractive. Um, it's very rare, I think, that something will win when it's more expensive and worse. And still, I think at this stage, quite a lot of the official products that were being offered by the copyright holders were more expensive and worse from a sort of technical performance slinkness point of view than than uh, some of these products. Um, and then, obviously, the music industry did see uh, the advantage of a product like iTunes and started licensing content through that. And then that has sort of continued over time to the point where both music and uh, movie industries or television industries uh, are now, you know, happily licensing their content to a number of different uh, outlets that can p- provide those to people, um, and people are choosing those again. I think not because they're the cheapest necessarily, but because th- they they are fairly priced for the kind of quality that they deliver and the ease of use and the convenience. And that's where and I think we now have a lot and, and the, the, exactly. the music. But, yeah. but again, going back then to the sort of adaptation, because you have an industry being challenged by the fact that their, their formerly uh, physical product is in completely digital. And as Barlow says, it cannot be copied anywhere. It can be sent anywhere instantaneously, more or less. So th- there are a couple of different responses that you see at that point from, from the, the copyright holders. One of them that I found really interesting was this notion of digital rights management, where the idea was, let's reconstruct the physical scarcity in the digital space as much as we can. And and it started out with these ginormous, almost crazy projects. I remember at one point, I was involved in something called Imprimatur, which was a European Union-funded research project that was creating its own system within which copyrighted content would circulate on top of the internet. And it would sort of not be internet uh, proper, it would be a separate system. And only within this system could you then change uh, ownership and access digital content. And these these systems were called electronic copyright management systems, ECMSs. And they then morphed slowly into digital rights management, which was essentially limiting the usefulness of a digital product. That was the response. There was a lot of innovation there, but it was all generated to bring the digital product down to the level of functionality of the physical one. So it wasn't that they didn't have the the innovation capability was just that they choose to direct it towards the status quo, to keep the status quo as as long as possible. And there's something in that that I think speaks volumes about how we adapt to new technologies and how we adapt to, to new business models. Because obviously, when you look back at it now, it's, I mean, the imprimatur sounds like a bizarre, almost like former East German invention. <laughs> but 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 if you sort of think about the response then to try to bring things back to physical scarcity, it, it's quite human, isn't it? It, it is. And it's, as again, from our, our core subjects of regulation, this is what industries do, is, is they try and get regulation that will um, protect their products and their position in the market, um, potentially f- from sort of other uh, competitors. And we should, we should be candid, everybody, every industry does this. This is kind of in your DNA as a business. And at that stage, yeah, I remember, you know, they saw, I think, a lot of people who were on the copyright owning side of things kind of could see a glimmer of hope if only they could um, persuade legislators to legislate to inc- to require operating systems and devices and things to have either chips or software in place that would um, check on copyright and only play things if if uh, it had been properly licensed. And and to be candid, I mean, some of that survived, so it's still there. If you if you download a video from Amazon today, it's telling you when you download it that you know high definition videos will only uh, play on certain devices. So a lot of this stuff is built in, but it's it's bottom up rather than top down. I think the 
the sort of lobbying at the time was to have it imposed top down. Can we can we, you know, create this sort of requirement that all devices must have it and then and and they will blow up or report you to the police or whatever it is if you if you try and bypass them. That was the kind of and that would have been Again, frankly, if either of us had been working for, you know, people had very large copyright portfolios at that time, we would have been out there lobbying exactly for that because it was the it's the sort of sledgehammer um, solution. But it didn't come to pass. I say that I think the idea has not gone away, and digital rights management is still there, and I think will be there, and is, is an interesting part of the ecosystem. Um, but it's not the silver bullet. I think the other thing that was was uh, often happens, I think was misunderstood then, is look, the, the working assumption is that the industry is going to be the kind of size and scale that it is at the time that you're going into the transition. And so this scale question uh, is often missed. And so again, a lot of these solutions depend on you know a small number of manufacturers making a small number of devices with a small number of sort of software distribution systems and then you potentially have got the opportunity to kind of control all of this and a small number of copyright owners. In reality, there's been this sort of, with digital, this massive explosion of the different types of software platform, the different types of uh, uh, distribution mechanism, and actually uh, a massive explosion in the number of people producing content. And all of that content also is copyrighted. So again, if you're thinking about digital rights management today, you know, when I do a silly photo uh, of, of something happening in the street and I put that up onto my social media site, I'm distributing content which has got my copyright. It's my copyrighted content and, um, as soon as I do that. And so we now have millions of people from, I mean, the, the big record studio, recording studios are still there. The big movie industry people are still there. But then there's this massive long tail of other people who are producing copyrighted material. Um, and again, I don't, I'm not confident that any kind of mega uh, one ring to rule them all digital rights management system can kind of cope with all of that. It, it may only just be able to cope with one end of the spectrum. Uh, and therefore, you can't kind of argue this is going to solve the whole problem. Uh, there was also a lot of innovation on the other side, which I thought was interesting. I mean, we don't see that often. Uh, we see civil innovation when it comes to legal frameworks. But if you think about the way that that um, we started to debate copyright early on, and this this followed, I think, the 1996 WIPO Copyright Treaty, which was sort of a digital upgrade, turned into the 2001 Copyright Directive in the European Union and the DMCA in, in the US uh, with some modifications. As that came into law, there were a lot of people who felt that something was being lost, that the copyright industry was sort of entrenching the old world on the new one. And I think what it led to was this, this wave of civil innovation I thought was really interesting. And one of the most uh, interesting things there, of course, is this notion of creative commons, where they created an entirely new license within the existing copyright framework. And this license was meant to help people uh, share rather than restrict sharing. And so um, the way copyright is set up, uh, you automatically have copyright in whatever it that you create. You don't need to register it. You don't need to um, uh, apply for it. Copyright just exists. But what the Creative Commons did was it allowed you to nullify that and perhaps just stick with what we talked about in the beginning, the right to attribution. You say, I want to be identified as the author of this work, but beyond that, I will make no economic claims for it. I will just allow you to use it and whatever you feel is fine, do it. I'm, I'm not going to, that's not a problem for me. And I thought this civil innovation that we saw in the copyright space was, we haven't seen this in, in many other legislative spaces when it comes to tech policy. And Creative Commons is still alive and well today. And people are using it when they share their photos because they, I think there was a realization that a large part of the value in what you're creating is actually in the use. It's yes. in how well distributed it is. And that then generates a potential value for you in the next thing you create. So it's, it's, there's something there that, that I think was really interesting as well. Coming back to regulation, though, I think it's, it's worthwhile to then see what happened because you have, you have the, the, the recording industry, film industry, the, the, the copyright folks thinking about what to do next. They want to bring it back to physical properties. They go to WIPO, which is this old organization, the World Intellectual Property Rights Organization, 
organization within the UN system that um, that takes care of the Bern Convention, which is one of the basic legal instruments for copyright. And they want to update the Bern Convention. In 1996, uh, they, 1996, they succeed with something that's called, I think, the WIPO Copyright Treaty that is then translated into European Union Directive and into the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And I remember that at the time, there were a lot of American and European thinkers who were up on the barricades protesting both of these pieces of legislation. And one of the most well-known, and we'd be remiss not to, to mention him, I think, was Larry Lessig. Yes. And Larry Lessig had a series of presentations and a series of really good talks. And, you know, he was also one of the moving forces behind, I think, Creative Commons. So, so there's, there's this, you know, the entire movement to, to question the way copyright is now entrenching on the digital space finds its uh, leading actor, if you will, in, in professional. Lessig. I thought sure. I thought it was really interesting. I remember reading him as a, a young technology policy enthusiast and going, hell yes, yes, he's right. But today, I think if you start tech policy today, I wonder how many people know who Larry Lessig is. Yeah, I, I mean, I had exactly the same experience and I, I hope he's still, Larry's still being um, read. I mean, th- there are there's interesting, a couple of things sort of pull out f- from that. One is that there definitely was a culture war going on. And and the culture war was between those who, whose who sort of believes a matter of principle that um, uh, content should be shared freely, and those who you know believe in uh, being able to exploit it. Uh, it, it. I mean that in the in the sort of a- a technical sense, not exploit as in exploitative, but you know who believe that you should be able to to derive value from your uh, content or at least control how that value is derived. So that culture war is definitely um, going on uh, throughout this period. And that, and again, uh, we keep going back to it. I don't think either position is, is sort of uh, uh, necessarily the default one for everybody. I mean, you should be able to choose between the two. If you want to give your stuff away freely, uh, that's what's important to you. You should be able to do that. Um, but equally, I don't think we should be in a position where we say, yeah, everyone should have to give away all of that stuff freely all of the time. And Creative Commons, I think, does, we should come back to it because it nicely t- tries to reconcile that position. And I was just thinking about our own, uh, this podcast and the stuff that I write. Uh, um, what Creative Commons does is it gives you a really simple language to express your intention. And and copyright law is it, it's legalistic. It's complex. A lot of it, you know, a lot of us don't kind of really understand it. But it's not it, it's not clear. And and if you look at um, this is where a lot of platforms get in trouble because their terms of service will say things like you know the content that you put onto our platform is yours. You retain the copyright, but you are giving us this license. And there's twenty clauses that explain the license that you've granted to the platform to distribute your copyrighted content to other people. Blah blah blah. And so it's very legalistic. It's a seasonal flu thing going on here every sort of autumn or spring somebody sends me a facebook message saying i do not grant facebook the rights to all of my intellectual property and uh, you're so right exactly. it's, it's, it's interesting because the language is so convoluted right yeah and under classic copyright law you have to do it that way whereas what creative commerce does is like it's a really simple way of often expressing exactly the same thing but it's done in a much simpler way and so i was thinking for example the podcast that we're doing i would say we, we should probably create our creative commons license but i would would say that um, uh, uh, ours would be share alike. You can share uh, this content. We'd love more people to listen to it. Attribution, uh, please recognize us. Um, and I think we'd probably put on non-commercial, um, uh, as in if I you're going to take the commercial use yeah, too. I would commercial. be interested in if someone can find the commercial use for, for it. it. Yeah. <laughs> But, but you might want to, you, you might say, look, you know, I'm just going to draw the line at, like, if you're going to take the stuff that we've created and you're going to try and make money out of it, yeah, then at that point you should, and non-commercial doesn't mean you can't do it. It means come back and ask for a license for the commercial use. Um, so it's it's not necessarily saying you can never do it, but it's saying you can't do it without coming back and talking to me. So, But again, as we're having this conversation now, that's the kind of discussion I think that in 2021, a normal person who's producing content for the internet might want to have, which is let's talk about you know, do, do I, how strongly do I feel I need that attribution? Or I'm happy just for people to take the stuff and just use it. Uh, how's, how do I feel about whether people exploit it commercially? How do I feel about how it gets shared? Um, 
Creative Commons creates a lovely framework for you to have those kind of human conversations rather than the, you know, um, uh, 50 clauses of licensing <laughs> uh, text that you would otherwise have to have. And so I think we owe Larry Lessig both for the clarity of his thinking and in particular for, for sort of driving that initiative. And maybe it's time you know, to revisit it. I think Creative Commons has been a little bit stuck in tech world, if you like. It tends to be well known by people like us who, who work on this stuff. Uh, I'm not sure how far it's sort of spread out into to broader circulation. And, and perhaps in this area around um, uh, ordinary people's content, social media content in particular, maybe that there's a, an, a sort of second win for Creative Commons there where I would love to see if it could replace some of this sort of horribly complex licensing uh, uh, text that goes into all of the social media platforms terms of service. Yeah, and I think Creative Commons also tried to do something else that I really found, and I, I've only realized this uh, after having sort of looked into it many, many years ago, and that's that it, it uh, your point about it being human readable or being sort of accessible is also a point about why you would want to restrict access to content. So Creative Commons starts from a completely different set of first principles saying, look, here are the possible reasons, like attribution, commercial use, all of those things, possible reasons that someone would like to restrict strict content uh, access to the content that they've originally created and i think i think it was also a response to the fact that that you didn't get a lot of discussion about the motivation when you go back to the wipo copyright treaty or the 2001 directive and and one sign of this that i remember vividly is the bizarre debate about caching now, the, most people won't remember this, but there was uh, this is sort of from the um, the, from the horrible archives of tech policy. It was a discussion of whether or not a cash copy was a copy in the copyright sense, right? So the idea was that if you were caching something, and caching, to explain a technical term, is essentially intermediate storage. You're storing it somewhere to make it more accessible to other parts of the network. So you have one copy in Sweden and another in Denmark because Danish users can use the Danish copy faster. And so if you do cache, it's only available to machines until users actually try to request access to it. Now, caching was something that should, according to some proponents on the on the copyright uh, maximalist side, be considered as any other copy and any caching that happened had to be entirely licensed, which would have put a, a pin in the internet. You sort of, that's that's game over. You can't cache, everything that you cache, you can't license. It, you know, caching is something different. But it brings us back to the, to the kind of maximalist and, and I think, frankly, panicked position that many in the industry were in at that point, where they were seeing that nobody was using physical anymore and they didn't have a way to meet the digital demand. And so you ended up with a maximalist uh, copyright position. And, and that has consequences. I think that is one of the root causes for Germany and Sweden then getting pirate parties that even managed to get into the European Parliament. That maximalist position then gave birth to a generation who think about copyright as restricting access to knowledge, not providing uh, control or, as you say, uh, economic rights over content. Sure. And, and I think there's there's so much path dependencies there in the debate that we have today and in the growing generation that's sort of the, the next generation to... to um, to take care of the internet. Oh, sorry, and, and I mean, again, I, I um, haven't seen these studies on it, but I, I, I would love to see uh, studies on the impact of that maximalist position. Then, where where the rhetoric was all uh, around people stealing copyright, yeah. stealing theft, they pushed this really, really hard with prosecutions. And and again, actually, Larry Larry Lessig, if you read him, sort of opens up this idea of that there are resources that where you when you take them you take a resource away from somebody, they no longer have the resource, only you have it. And there are others, I think technical term is non-rivalrous, where I can take it, but you still have it. And and I love my analogies, and I was kind of thinking of this in transport terms. If, if you have a car, and I come and steal your car, then you no longer have a car, I have a car. That's a sort of classic theft. Um, if, on the other hand, I jump on and off a train without paying my fare... Uh, the train still runs. Other passengers, you know, still been able to catch that train. I've not taken the train away from anyone, but I have, in a sense, I've deprived the train company of the fare. So I've I've taken something of value from them, but without diminishing the core thing. And of course, if if everybody stops paying the train fare, eventually you'll have no train running. And again, in the copyright world, I can see why if if a certain percentage of people start dodging the fare, maybe it encourages others to dodge the fare. So, so it definitely has an impact. 
but I think most internet users recognize that fair dodging is different from stealing cars. Both bad, well, and, 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 but different. And Lessig, used to, I mean, Lessig had this, uh, Lessig also likes his analogies, and he, he used to, I think he used to refer back to, I think it was Jefferson, because one of the founding fathers of, of um, the US was very skeptical to copyright, and he used to say something like, if you light your candle by mine, you have not taken anything from me, and, I am, and you do not owe me anything. And this idea that ideas would be restricted, that you would uh, restrict the flow of ideas, Jefferson found fundamentally misguided. And and of course, if you're a copyright maximalist, you would say it's not the ideas, it's the shape that we give to the ideas. And that's where the value resides. So you make this really quite interesting metaphysical uh, distinction between ideas and the shape of ideas or the actual form that an idea takes. But but bringing it back to, to sort of the, the question about the copyright maximalist situation and what it actually led to, I think that has been one of the perhaps most interesting drivers of technological development as well. Because the peer-to-peer, BitTorrent, all of those different things were driven by the enormous pressure uh, that was thrown on uh, the copyright market. So to a large degree, I think you can you can say that BitTorrent is sort of the final, I think, pirate technology, if you will, uh, was the response to a copyright maximalist position as well. And, and of course, then you, you ended up with the, the Pirate Bay, famous Swedish export that predated yes. Spotify. And here's an interesting question I saw in the news the other day where somebody said, look, do you think you'd actually have Spotify if you didn't have the Pirate Bay? If you didn't have a lot of people thinking hard, thinking about how to meet the man that's actually there. And, you know, I think it's it's probably a simplistic way of framing it, but there's something to it. There's something to, to sort of the, the connection there that I find fascinating. Could we have jumped straight from CDs to iTunes and Spotify without this stuff in between is an interesting question. I mean, I think the, the peer-to-peer was r- responding to two things. So one was that huge demand for the content, and the other, frankly, was was the limited bandwidth that we had at the time. So, so if you go back then, even if somebody had come up with a, a kind of a, a Spotify model, but based on central servers, if if uh, one of the music studios has said, like, we're going to create a big server and we're going to stick all our content on it and we're going to let you download it, they probably would have struggled <laughs> to deliver the service. Um, and peer to peer was a really smart technical response to. Uh, enabling people to move quite large amounts of content over very very limited connections because those, those limits at least um at least in the western world uh, uh they've sort of largely gone in the sense that now you can well, they're still, they're, they're, i mean a lot of companies still use torrent technologies or torrent like technologies to distribute really large game update patches for example things like that so i remember this was an issue actually way back when because there was a suggestion that uh, and again, it goes back to the maximalist position. There was a suggestion uh, a couple of, was five, five, six years ago, that all platforms and all ISPs should be forced to block access to the BitTorrent protocol, yeah. um, which would then have disrupted a number of companies who were using similar protocols to update their software, for example. So, so there's, there's this recurring theme of maximalism that is then being met by technological development in a, in a, in a very interesting way. And it brings us back to, I think one of the most problematic statements around the internet that we got early on that was was used a lot in the copyright debates but originated in the free speech debates and it was essentially this idea that the internet treats censorship as damage and routes around it. That I remember clearly that this this sort of the notion of free speech and copyright were being they were they were closer to each other being melded into one big issue and and it was a lot of people cast that in the frame of of access to knowledge. You know, what is the ideal for a society, starting from first principle, when it comes to access to knowledge? Is it to have stovepiping and make sure that access to knowledge is dependent on money, or is it to maximize access to knowledge? So there was maximalism on the other side as well. A lot of people saying, no, all knowledge should be free. And, and not thinking about what that would do to people's livelihoods or to sort of the, the will to create or the will to invest the time and resources and effort and actually takes to create something. So, so perhaps it's a one, it's a bit of one sided to say that it was only the copyright folks who were maximalists there, right? No, you're right. I think on, on both sides. And, the, and again, you know, this is this culture war that if you come often from the internet side or the technology side, your god is innovation. <laughs> um, it's not. It's not even about the money. In many cases, in some cases, it is. You, you see this as a business opportunity, but in many other cases, it's 
you know, innovation is the god. And so you see any restriction on your ability to innovate as problematic. So again, if you look at something like, uh, uh, you know, why you would oppose copyright in the music space, it's because you love the idea of somebody taking a piece of music, putting it into a video, creating something brand new out of it. And and what you don't want is that innovator, that new creator to be restricted. Um, and so you place the rights of the new creator in a sense, ahead of the rights of the creator of the original piece of music uh, and say, well, those should be overridden because if not, uh, they they stand in the way of this innovation, whether that's in creative content or in software or wh- whatever it is in ideas. Um, the remix phenomenon, it's, right? It's yeah. the remix, and it's, it is the idea. I think in some areas, you know, a- academia would be a classic example. There is a Although there are issues around academic journals and access to academic journals in this space as well, but yeah, well, I mean, in academia, there's no argument for copyright whatsoever, is no. there? I mean, the the it's been established by Posner, by tons of economic analysts, saying that if there's one place that we shoot ourselves in the foot massively, it's when we copyright academic research. I think that's 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 contentious only with uh, some of the, the the people publishing journals. Exactly. But otherwise, I think it's fairly clear if you think about science as a social function. Yeah, so there's some areas like that say where it's obvious you should be able to build on stuff that went before, and there, and most people I think would have sort of accepted that. It's it's much harder with something like music, and again, that's it's an interesting example of where we've ended up with the settlement, the YouTube um, settlement around taking music and using it is quite interesting. Again, the, the core principle being: look, if if I create a piece of music and I uh, create a video with my music in it and I stick it on YouTube or anywhere else. You know, that's my copyright material. I'm fine. I get to exploit it. If I've created a video and I've taken someone else's music and put it in there, then that other person can reasonably expect to have some say over whether or not that's going to happen. And if it makes money, if I create a you know fabulous video and YouTube kindly gives me a revenue share so that I can get some money from the advertising shown against it, well, the person whose music is expects some of that to flow back to them. And, and YouTube effectively, over time, created a system. I think that you're probably more familiar with than I am. A content ID, yeah, does that. A yeah. Content ID, and I think it's and and one of the points that I think is important here is the system you're describing was was I, one argument would be to say that it was designed because the implementation of the WIPO Copyright Treaty in American law, uh, the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, allowed for that to happen by putting in place a notice and takedown system. So this notice and takedown system then gave a little bit of space to, to innovation, which arguably is, is sort of a, a main motivation for many tech companies, to think about what could we do that would sort of respond to copyright holders' interests in uh, figuring out how they can control and exploit their rights and still also allow for some of the remixing that's so important for culture to proceed um so i think it's in that case the the legislation and it's it was really controversial at the time but but you could argue that the way the legislation opened a bit of space for technological innovation and interpretation was really important to the way that the companies and uh, copyright holders could then negotiate a technological solution on top of their on on top of sort of the licenses and the legal stuff. And I think most again, ordinary internet users might feel as a fairness that meets the fairness test. You know, I yeah. I still get to use the music uh, uh, again as long as they're part of the system. And it is really frustrating for individuals when they upload a video and they get told it's going to be you know, taken offline for copyright reasons. But because that music owner is not not participating, but where they are then the creator of the new content uh, will feel quite happy and and I'm sure they'll accept that some of the money should flow through uh, to the person whose music they've used in that. So I think it's a nice example of where you can get to that point where where there is sort of fairness all around without frustrating innovation. Um, but again, sometimes they know the the music owners, the copyright owners will feel they're not getting paid enough and they'll lobby for that. And, and again, in our regulatory battles, of course, if you're uh, the platform, you're going to be arguing to try and you know keep the payments as low as possible because that's your revenue going off there. If you're the creators, uh, the copyright owners, you're going to be arguing for the revenues to be increased as high as possible. Interestingly, the voices you often don't hear in the lobbying are those of the individual users, uh, the ones who are making the new video. And again, just as a curious reflection in our regulatory debate that 
it was you know a lot of regulation is commercial negotiation dressed up with a thin veneer of principle and uh, yeah, so there'll be this sort of on one side the platforms will say it's the principle of allowing people to innovate and create new content that they hide behind and the copyright owners will hide behind the principle of the urge to create and protecting uh, the ability of or the future uh, uh, stream of, of forward creators by by making sure the revenues are higher. Like both of them are just arguing about money in this, <laughs> at the end of the day. And, and well, and I think that was I mean it was really interesting because you did have a grassroots movement. If you think about the 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 internet, uh, the sort of the copyright directive, or even more so the intellectual property rights enforcement directive, the IPRED, that uh, that sort of that really uh, I think put the dent in privacy protections in order to make it possible for copyright holders to find out who was copying their work on public networks. Around that, you saw the growth of an enormous grassroots movement that then resulted in the pirate parties that we mentioned earlier. And so I think users got really engaged in this issue. And I think that they, as opposed to many other discussions, I think that this is one where, where people felt that something was at stake here, something important about the way that the future of the internet would look. And, and then they got perhaps somewhat disillusioned when they saw the commercial negotiations under your thin veneer of principle be the main way in which most of these battles resolved. And I think today uh, it would probably be hard to find the same kind of enthusiasm for the copyright issues as you could see people show, uh, young people show um, in the early 2000s, for example. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're exactly right. And, and you're right that, that a lot of people got involved. And, and I think it was Poland in particular, where we saw very extensive demonstrations around. Well, they, they uh, stopped a, a trade agreement exactly. in Poland, for example. Yeah. And you had Sopa Pipa in the US. And there was a lot of user engagement in these yeah. issues because it, it was felt that you're losing something essential to the open nature of the internet. That's right. And even around the latest iterations of um, copyright in, in Europe, you saw a few of those grassroots demonstrations. But they're they're fading. They're becoming, uh, I think, weaker uh, over time. And I think one reason for that is that where we are today, uh, there is essentially uh, very low threshold ways to meet demand for digital content that are perceived, to your point in the very beginning, as fair solutions and fair recompense. Exactly. So the, those business models have kind of worked out. And again, the, just to sort of revisit my. Uh, public transport or my transport analogy yes if if um people are dodging the fares on the trains uh you know at scale um going after the fare dodges yeah it gets you so far which is probably the old old sort of model of where the copyright uh, owners were at a certain point you need to go back and look at it and go well have we got the right kind of fare structure and passes and technology in place in order to to kind of make it easy for people to pay uh, are are the mechanisms simple and are the costs reasonable and i think we've now got to that as you say for, for most people most of the time uh, as you think the the bigger challenge in some, some senses now is, as I described earlier, like, like if content is not available on one of the streaming platforms, then then it's that's where it's probably going to be a target for uh, illegal distribution because people want it. Um, but we are moving into a space, I think, at least for the mainstream market, where most people, most of the time, if offered a reasonable product at a reasonable price um, that, that gives them access to the copyrighted material, will take that up. Yeah, and I think that piracy is a direct correlate of the inability to provide supply where there's demand. And I think yeah. it's it's been proven over and over again. Look at the Mandalorian, for example, launched in the US, uh, marketed all over the world and available only in the US or some key markets. And so markets where it wasn't available, you would see an uptick in piracy as a direct consequence of of unmet demand. And I think I think this is something that uh, the film industry, the, the music industry is, is completely aware of. And that's why you're thinking through things like launch windows or or how you how you sort of release wind, windows where you release a film do you release it directly to digital i think pandemic has had some really interesting effects here too because if you if you sort of try to release something only for the big screen and there's like five people who can watch it the aggregate demand that's unmet is going to i think again then to 
be be uh, forced into to uh, or not forced into, but it's going to translate into piracy in different ways. But, but I think where we are today, and you touch on this, and I think you, so we can go for this. We can say look, there was a lot of demand for digital content. Digital content far surpassed the capacity of physical content. We saw that demand be unmet for the longest time, and we saw an industry trying to reduce the digital product to physical again. We saw them try to for maximalist copyright industry legislation, and and over time we saw commercial solutions broker a new balance in this market to the point where today I think digital downloads of both movies and and music is growing at breakneck speeds across all different markets. But then comes a new issue that you I think you touched on. I'd like to hear you think more about this this question of okay what happens now because licenses are still applied. You have several different streaming services and instead of building sort of a global internet of content, what's happening is that you're moving into what more or less looks like a series of TV channels um, where where you sort of, you're going to have to subscribe to your particular TV channel if you want your particular content. And, and that's sort of a, a new stovepipe fragmented world where you can almost expect or predict that within two or three years, we'll have a new pirate uh, piracy debate because of that. I, wasn't that where you were going with your remarks? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, again, it is... Um as you're curious in the news media area that this has been debated a lot where where bundling um the sort of is the micropayments versus bundling debate so so one way of dealing with content is to say let's have a system of micropayments and i'll take the news media industry because they haven't yet sort of done this but it would be you know i pay per article or i pay per uh, access to a particular news media site bundling would say I pay a service that has got all of the news media or most of the news media I'm interested in. I pay them a monthly fee and I can read and consume as much as I like. So the bundling is what a Netflix does. It's what a uh, Spotify does in, in other areas. Um, there, are, there are really interesting sort of questions, I think, about whether bundling... <laughs> Uh, is going to be the long-term future, which seems to be the more attractive one at the moment. People seem much happier bundling than they are um, with paying for micropayments. The, the complexity and so on is difficult. But maybe over time that will shift. Um, so I think there's going to be a competition between sort of meta-bundlers. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I'm i going to help organize all of your services that already exist in bundles. I think I have three or four different video streaming services. So somebody could come oh along. Oh my God, sort of, you're describing Comcast, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. They could, they could sort of promise to organize all of that. And so there may be a version of the internet, which is a cable TV version of the internet um, that somebody can put together and sell me and frankly, that could be quite an attractive proposition. So I'm it's AOL, it's America Online. It, yeah. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> exactly. So, 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 but you can uh, anyway. You you can see sort of in consumer behaviour how that might be attractive. As the internet is all this other stuff as well, but the 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 video content consumption and the audio content consumption is is bundled by somebody for me who then behind the scenes then pays all the different people. So that's one version. But the other version is. Look, if you take all the friction out of the micropayment system and and as the technology sort of improves, maybe that's more attractive. So, in fact, I don't want Amazon and Netflix and people to, to mediate between me and the content. I want to buy a license directly from the original owner of the content. So, so this in this version of the internet, the bundlers actually go away. Um, so this would be more like internet v comcast <laughs> way back when so may maybe the internet is becoming comcasty maybe this is just a perpetual cycle it's becoming comcasty and then there'll be a pushback against that where um people will say whoa hang on a minute you know i'm frustrated that my amazon prime licenses don't translate to my netflix licenses to my other licenses i want to buy the license directly from the original content producer and now somebody has made that uh, seamless, frictionless, giving me confidence in the payment system. I'm not going to get ripped off or I'm giving my credit card details to too many strangers, which actually is a huge barrier in this space. The new the new content creator, if they're asking for your credit card details for a micropayment, it may not be the money that worries you. It may be actually perhaps quite correctly the the, the transaction, the fact that you're giving over uh, payment details, some that's a problem. So we may see Isaiah, the landscape, I think, head in either of those two directions, or perhaps in both. Uh, a bit more Comcast for a while, and then a pushback against that, and moving towards something that's much more 
direct licensing from content producer to content consumer. I think that's a fascinating. I think that's probably true. There are so many other things here we could explore. <sighs> yes. I think it's interesting to think about the fact that production of content gets cheaper and cheaper all the time, for example. So what will that mean when the means of production are no longer <laughs> controlled in a Marxian sense by the record industry or the movie industry and people can start putting out their own movies? To a large degree, that's already happening, but but not at the commercial level. But Will that change? Will the new generation seek out that kind of content instead? The folks who have been sort of uh, essentially raised on TikTok videos or YouTubers, etc., are they going to feel that production value that comes from, from sort of an industrial production is really something they're willing to pay a premium for? So changing behaviors there, I think, will be really interesting. And I also think that we, we haven't touched on something else, which is the economics here. And we have to come back yeah. to this subject because it's yeah. fascinating. And I think the economics is interesting because if you if you were looking at copyright, you really literally never forced to say, what is it worth for me to do this? You don't have to specify a per hour uh, fee that you would like to charge for, say, writing a book or making a piece of music, uh, which is not true for any other intellectual. If you're a consultant, if you're sort of doing other intellectual work, you're always forced to price yourself. But copyright is sort of saying, I want as much as I can get out of this intellectual um, property that I've created. So I'm going to sort of just make sure that I control the right and then get paid as much as I can be paid. That's being reversed by services like Patreon. Um, where the idea instead is to say, look, for me, it, I would absolutely go do this, write this book, write this piece of music, etc. if you gave me $100,000. Then it's worth it for me. And then people sort of pitch in $100,000 and they expect that they will get the product and they'll get some premium from it. And at that point, you could start to think about the production of intellectual property as the production of any other kind of property where you're forced to mention a price, where you're forced to think through what it's actually worth for you to invest the time, the resources, the effort, and that's an un- entirely different paradigm that might be growing over time too. So I think there's certainly a reason for us to come back to this and think more about it. But you know, so far I think this is a this is this is at least a start, uh, a first look at the the early days of the copyright wars uh, for those of you kids who who weren't around <laughs> for the time, right? Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, there's another one to come back to. I think this is a, a repeated theme as we dive into these subjects. Um, but again, it, it, perhaps in in keeping with the spirit of the conversation uh, that we're having today our future conversations will build on this previous conversation and perhaps even take elements and repeat them and remix them so yes let's, uh, <laughs> exactly. let's come back but to we this. promised not to put them to music or sing that's <laughs> <laughs> Wait, except we should we should uh, listen the jingle uh, whose whose copyright is our jingle on our podcast well, the, the the jingle is CC zero. Anyone can copy it and use it. I I wrote that. You are the <laughs> in a very uh, um, uh, swift moment. Um, so uh, with that, we're ending um, uh, the hour, and you can find this podcast at Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech. Exactly. And get back to us with any comments, thoughts, you know, if you want to make corrections, if we said something that was wildly wrong, don't hesitate. We appreciate all uh, all your feedback and we're looking forward to speaking again next week. Thank you. <laughs>